If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's on page 1029, 1029, Revelation chapter 3. Dr. Vance Harvner has noted that spiritual ministries often go through four stages. A man, a movement, a machine, and then a monument. Another theologian adds what could be a fifth category, a mortuary. This was the stage, this mortuary stage, was the stage that the church in our passage this morning was headed for. In Revelation chapter 3, we read, and you just heard, the letter to the church in Sardis. Sardis was one of the oldest cities in Asia, the ancient capital of Lydia. It was a center for trade of jewelry, of dye, and of textiles. It was also a military center and a stronghold. It was set on a plateau of 1,500 feet above sea level with some of the areas uh, almost inaccessible. It was a place of pagan worship with a massive temple to Artemis, as we've seen with many of these cities. Uh, Two weeks ago, we looked at the church in Pergamum. That church was characterized by moral compromise. Last week, we looked at the church in Thyatira, which was characterized by corruption. And this week, we will look at the church in Sardis, which is labeled as a dead church. The process we can see within these three churches is from compromise to corruption to death. And to this church in Sardis, Jesus wrote his fifth letter beginning in verse 1, chapter 3, says this, And to the angel of the church in Sardis writes, The words of him who has the seven stars of God, and the seven, excuse me, the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars. As with every letter, Jesus begins with acknowledging who's writing. And he says something about himself in the first, the first verse of the letter. To the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God, And the seven stars. That is, in fact, Jesus. We look back to chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 1, verse 16, to see just that. Jesus began by stating his knowledge, his watchfulness, his presence, his care. The seven spirits here are referring to the Holy Spirit, the the fullness of the Holy Spirit, that number seven. It's not referring to seven different spirits. It's talking to the fullness or the completeness of the Holy Spirit. And to the seven stars here, he's talking uh, about the angels, uh, or the representatives, or the elders of the church, the seven stars. Jesus uh, has them. The, the words of him who has the seven spirits and the seven stars. Uh, the, the, the representative of, of the church is possessed by Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of, of God. It's the spirit of Jesus. So Jesus is writing these words. Uh, sometimes we, we want to uh, wonder whether or not the words in red are more important than the words in black in your Bible. We want you to know that they're all the words of God. They're all the words of God. Now, the black words are as much the words of God as the red words. 
But here we know that these actually are the words of Jesus. Jesus is writing this or speaking this. John, of course, penning this. And it is Jesus. Jesus is fully aware of what's going on in the church. As we see in the very next sentence where he says this, I know your works. Here, uh, Jesus jumps right to criticism. And we'll see it in the next sentence. Uh, Some of these churches, many of these churches, Jesus begins with a word of commendation. Uh, a word of approval, saying something positive, uh, looking at the church and finding something that he can compliment them for. But here, to the church of Sardis, he does no such thing. He begins with his criticism. He moves right to criticism. Jesus knows the good, he knows the bad, he knows the incomplete. And here he says, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Commentator Grant says this, character is what God knows you are, while reputation is what people think you are. You have the reputation, Jesus says. Uh, People think that you are alive, but I know better, you are dead. In its heyday, Sardis was outstanding, but, but during the time of the Roman period, the city was broken down. Uh, This same writer that I just quoted says, the character of the city was reflected in the church. So like the city, the church had a reputation of being alive or spiritually vital, when in reality they were spiritually dead or or dying rapidly. What what once was a, a church that was thriving has now become a church that is dying. This was a counterfeit church. Vance Harvin says again, she, talking about the church, had had it all in the show window, but nothing in stock. J. Campbell Morgan says, this was reputation without reality. Swindoll says the church of Sardis was a morgue with a steeple. They had the works, they looked a certain way, but there was no life. You see, the evidence of a church the, the spirituality of a church is not that it's merely filled with works. It's not that it's just busy doing things, but rather a church that is filled with the Spirit. One commentator says that the Spirit is the key to vitality in the Christian life, and we would add to vitality in the church. We remember Acts chapter 2, that on the day of Pentecost, the church was born. And it was given life. And how? By the Spirit. The Spirit gives life. When a church strays from or grieves the Spirit, it loses power, it loses life, it loses spiritual vitality. And here Sardis was a deceiving church. It looked one way on the outside, and yet it was all a lie. In the Gospels, Jesus addressed this idea of hypocrisy. He addressed it to religious people, the religious leaders, the the scribes and the Pharisees, who were clean on the outside, but Jesus saw something else on the inside. And in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus pronounces a woe against them, and he says this, verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly 
appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. In Isaiah chapter 29, the prophet giving the word of the Lord says that there were people who drew near to the Lord, who honored him with their lips, yet their heart was far from him. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says that there are those who have the appearance of godliness, yet they deny its power. And what does he say to those Christians? Avoid such people. There are those who are going to act one way, but really, really, they deny the power of God. Hypocrisy is more dangerous than we may realize, and we are more susceptible to it than we may know. Hypocrisy is acting. Hypocrisy is pretending. It's pretending to be something that we are not. It's pretending to be more than we are. In any sort of pretending is really lying. Hypocrisy can fool people for a time. Hypocrisy, in our hypocrisy, we may even fool ourselves for a time. But it does not fool Jesus. Jesus who knows our works Jesus, who, as we read last week, has eyes like a flame of fire and who searches mind and heart. Jesus knows all. Nothing escapes him. He knows who we really are. So before Jesus, there's there's no pretending. And there's no need to pretend here either. He can see through it all. And so we ask ourselves, do our actions actually back up our words? Do the things that we say, are those the things we actually believe? And if we believe them, how in fact are we showing any evidence of it? Do we walk the talk, we might say. We might say that we love the Lord, how do we show that we love the Lord? We may say that we love the gospel, how do we show that we love the gospel? We may say that we want people to know about Jesus, but do we tell people about Jesus? These are all questions, aren't they? These are all things that we must ask ourselves lest we be guilty of the same criticism that Jesus gives to the church of Sardis. Well, Jesus was not content with just identifying the problems, which he certainly does well, but he also provides a solution, a word of correction. We see it in verses two and three. Listen to it. Wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found, not found your works complete in my sight, in the sight of my God. Verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Now, now here in these, uh, what is it, three verses or two verses, three sentences, we see five commands or five imperatives that Jesus gives to the church concerning their situation. What's the solution out of this? This is the situation that they are a church who has a reputation of something, but it's not true. They're dead or they're dying rapidly. What is the solution? Is there a solution? Is there a a, a treatment for this critical or crucial condition that the church is in? How does Jesus call them back to God? And the first imperative comes in the beginning of verse two, wake up, wake up. Be alert, be watchful, be vigilant. Sardis was, as we said, a military center. 
It was a, a stronghold, and it was set on this, this plateau, and there were parts of it that were nearly in, inaccessible. And so when they were guarding their, their territory, there was one particular area that seemed impenetrable. There was a, cl- a rock cliff, and seemingly no one could get up it, or so they thought. And so when they guarded their, their territory, they didn't set a guard there, because they couldn't imagine how someone could come into the city that way. And yet that's exactly where they were captured from. One of those times was Cyrus the Persian. It is exactly where there was no guard that they found entrance into the city and captured the city for the first of two times. Their confidence, the confidence of Sardis to believe that there was some area of their city that was so secure that they didn't need to guard it was ill-founded. It was ill-founded that the place left unguarded was the place that the enemy found. This story is instructive. It's parabolic for us today, isn't it? We are called to be on guard. Why? Because the enemy of our soul walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So Jesus says, wake up, pay attention. You, you, the, the area you think, church, the area you think that you, you don't need to worry about, that's the area you need to worry about. You need to worry about all the areas, but don't assume that there's somehow one area that, that oh, we got that, we got that nailed down because of X. No, no, no. That's when we are in the most danger. The battle is raging. If we think we are not in danger, that's exactly where the enemy wants you to be. You are in danger. I am in danger the devil is seeking to destroy. Well, to the second command, Jesus moves in verse two, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Now in this command, we actually see a glimmer of hope, don't we? Because he says, strengthen what remains. So there's still something. There's still something that, that could be revived. There's still something there that hasn't died yet. It's about to die, Jesus says, but strengthen what's left. Why? Because I've not found your works complete in my sight. They were incomplete works. What they were doing, the the way that they were living, fell short of God's standard. And if they would not heed God's correction or Jesus' correction, they would likely hear his condemnation later. Condemnation, like Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, When he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And Jesus says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. If we do not hear the word of Jesus now, the correction now, we will hear his condemnation later. The failure of Sardis, their incomplete works may have been their their unwillingness to confess Jesus' name, their their unwillingness to to stand up for the name of Jesus because they, they feared man. They may have feared the consequences of standing up as we've seen the consequences earlier in these these letters. But when the fear of man overshadows our fear of God, we are on the road to spiritual lethargy 
in compromise, which leads to destruction. And so not only wake up, not only pay attention, but strengthen what remains. Strengthen what remains. Thirdly, verse three, remember. Remember then what you received and heard. What have they received and what have they heard? But the gospel. Remember the gospel. Rehearse the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself. Never move on from the gospel. Never get over the gospel. If the gospel, in the gospel, we remember what? We remember who God is and what God has done for us. How God has loved us through Christ. And these truths, the, the gospel truths, are life-altering. They're life-altering. It's not just, just for eternity. It's for now. It's not just eternity-altering. It's e- earthly life-altering. The Apostle Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when he says, for the love of Christ." The the love that Christ has for us, the work of Christ for us, the love of Christ controls or compels us, what? Because we have concluded this, that the one who has died, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised. The gospel changes our life. And Jesus says to this church, and he says to you and me, remember it. Remember what you've received and what you've heard. Remember the work of Jesus. Remember what he has done and how that then affects the way you live. Remember. Next, Jesus says, keep it. We see the third command there. Keep it or observe or or obey. Hold on. Do what? Do, hold on to the gospel. Don't slip. Don't drift. Danny Aiken says, we never drift toward anything worthwhile. Right? You, you, you're never accidentally faithful. You never get done that the, the day and say, wow, I was, I was pretty faithful today. <laughs> Didn't see that coming. No, no, we're, we're never accidentally faithful. The, the drift is always away from God. It is never towards God. The drift is away from shore, not into shore we might say. It is only by the grace of God that we will consciously or intentionally walk in faith in in obedience. But it is with intention. It is with resolve. It is with consciousness that we will resolve not to drift. We must be intentional about it. You cannot accidentally be faithful. So we must hold on to Jesus. And the, the great hope of the Bible is that Jesus holds on to us. But here Jesus is saying, wake up, remember, keep, hold on, obey, observe, and then finally, repent. Repentance, theologian Danny Aiken Aiken says, is a change of mind resulting in a change of attitude concerning sin. A change of mind resulting in a change of attitude concerning sin. Attitude and action, we might say. Jesus opened his public ministry in the beginning of the Gospels, Matthew uh, 3, Mark 1, by saying the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the Gospel. Repentance is key to the Christian life. And I ask you, when was the last time you repented? 
When was the last time you sat before God and repented of your sins? When was the last time you stood before another person and repented of your sin against them? Not sure. Well, I am sure. It is because of pride, isn't it, that we refuse to repent. We, we want to be right. We, we want more to be right than to get it right. And it's pride. And that needs to be repented of as well. Repentance, we know, is the way back to God. It's the way back to life in the Spirit. And this is true revival. We've heard a little about revival in the past few months with what happened at Osbury Seminary or the, the, the college. But Jonathan Edwards wrote many years ago uh, a, a book, came a book, it was a sermon first, identif- identifying the, the, the distinguishing marks of the work, of a work of the Spirit of God or the distinguishing marks of true revival. He gave five of them, but, but the, the second one was this. And he based this on 1 John chapter 4. But the second of those marks was that the Holy Spirit acts against the influence of Satan's kingdom by preaching sin and repentance. Revival happens not when we just sing about it, not when we just say nice things about it, but where there is repentance, where there's recognition of sin and a turning from sin. If there is no repentance, there is no revival. Revival isn't just that I get happy about Jesus. Revival isn't just that, that I tell someone else about Jesus. Revival is that there is repentance happening among God's people. And you can only have revival, let's say this, you can only have revival where there is life. Life to be revived. You can't revive something that's not revived <laughs> or, or, or alive. You must have life in order for there to be revitalization. And so what is the marks of, of this revival? What is the way back to God? It is what Jesus says to the church in Sardis. How, how can they ever turn around? How can this church ever become thriving again? How can they ever have spiritual vitality? Maybe you feel that way this morning. Maybe you feel like, man, there was a day in my life where I was, I was kind of all in. And I was walking with Jesus and things were good. And now it feels like everything's distant. And I, I don't even know. Repentance. When was the last time you repented? When was the last time you acknowledged your sin? Not, not, not I'm sorry. I'm sorry is not repentance. Repentance is a recognition of wrong, yes, and a turning to what is right. The word actually means a 180 degree turn. That's what repentance means. So it means that I'm going one way and then I turn from that one thing to another thing. In this case, I turn from sin and I turn to God. It's not just that I turn from sin. It's not just that I'm sorry that I did that thing. That's not repentance. Repentance is that I turn to God. So it's not just when it was the last time you sinned. When was the last time you admitted that you sinned? No, when was the last time you turned from sin? And what sin do we need to turn from today? There is no repentance. There is no revival without repentance. Edward says that, th- that this, this repentance means a sensitivity to the dreadful nature of sin. It means a sensitivity to God's holy wrath and judgment of sin. It means personal awareness of one's own miserable condition. It means that people are aware of God's pity and help through Christ. Repentance is not merely a prayer 
that we pray at a point in time, but rather an ongoing rhythm of our spiritual life with God as we grow closer to him and are conformed more and more into the image of his son through his word. Repentance is not just something we declare, it's something that we demonstrate. Not something that we just speak, but something that we show. But if the church in Sardis would not repent, would not hear the word of Jesus, then he gives them a warning, a caution in the end of verse three. He says, if you will not wake up, if you won't listen to my correction, what will happen? I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. No repentance, no revival. No repentance brings judgments. Brings judgments. Here, Jesus is threatening to come against them. That's judgment language. He's coming to discipline them and he's coming like a thief, which means it's unexpected. He's coming in a, a, a covert way. And his judgments, his discipline will be worse than any persecution that they would face for standing up for him. This is not how we want Jesus to come to us, is it? The threat of God's judgment, the threat of his discipline against the church should bring about a healthy fear of God and should bring about repentance. Well, Jesus concluded with promises beginning in verse 4. Here's the confirmation. Yet, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. So what is Jesus saying? The whole church isn't dead. The whole church isn't dying. There are still some within this church that have remained faithful have not compromised, we would say. And to those, he says, they will wear white and walk with him. Uh, the, the use of the word white here is to indicate purity. It's to indicate victory. It's to indicate being justified in, in having or wearing the righteousness of God. And he says of these, they, they are worthy. Well, the worthiness is not their own. It's, it's not because they're such good Christians no, it's because they're covered in the righteousness of God. And because they're covered in the righteousness of God, that, that means that they can be accepted by God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us just that. For our sake, he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God, which makes us acceptable. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, we are accepted, how? In the beloved, in Christ. Your works will never make you acceptable to God. Jesus even says that to the church of Sardis, I know your works. <laughs> I know your reputation, but I also know better. You're dead. You might look something on the outside, but inside you're dead. The only way you could be made acceptable to God is because of the righteousness of Jesus, not your own righteousness. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel isn't do better. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has done it. And if you will, humble yourself and cling to him in repentance and faith, you too can be saved. You too can be covered in the righteousness of God. You too can wear white, so we see here, and one day walk with Jesus. Jesus continued in verse five, the one who conquers 
will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. The one who conquers or the one who overcomes, to the one who is faithful, to the one who believes, that one will never be blotted out of the book of life, will never be blotted out of the divine registry. Uh, One commentator says that when citizens died, their names will be erased from the rolls of their city. So Jesus is using this, this idea and saying, God will never erase believers from his roles. That you belong to, to a, a far country, a heavenly city, where citizenship is eternal because of Christ. This is security. This is eternal security. This tells us that whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Well, Jesus then says in verse 5, not only will you not be blotted out from the book of life, but next, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Jesus not only promises that we will walk with him, but that he will advocate for us before the Father. That idea of before the Father's is in the, in the presence of in the face of God, Jesus will speak for us. The criticism against the church of Sardis may just have been because they would not stand up and speak for Jesus. They were, they were neglecting to confess Jesus' name for whatever the reasons may have been. And yet in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says this, so everyone who acknowledges me before men I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus' promise is that for those who are faithful to him, he will be faithful to them. That's the promise of Jesus. That they will wear white and they will walk with him. That he will speak or advocate for them before the Father. Jesus concludes the letter with verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Sardis, the church in Sardis, had grown comfortable. That they were living off their past. They they were living off the time when when they were one day, at one point, spiritually vital. They had a measure of peace about that. Measure of peace in their church. I want to read the criticisms that Jesus gives to this church. There's no conflicts. There's no conflicts within the church, and there's no conflicts with with the world either, by the way. That may have been because they're not making any waves. (laughs) If you don't say anything that's controversial, you're going to have a measure of uh, of peace. Uh, But one writer says that this was the peace of of a sepulcher. (laughs) It was the peace of a tomb. We don't want that kind of peace. Now, we want peace with God, yes. We want peace with, with man as much as possible, but not at the expense of life. We need ears to hear Jesus' rebuke. They needed ears to hear Jesus' rebuke. They needed to wake up and to repent. And the church today needs it as well. Christians have grown, grown comfortable in our spiritual lives. Maybe that relates to you. Maybe you can relate with that, living off your past. Maybe you today, you feel spiritually lethargic. Maybe you feel feeble. 
Maybe you feel like a hypocrite. Maybe you're acting one way when you're around certain people and yet you know what's true in your heart. You have, a, you have a, outwardly, you're, you're a whitewashed tomb. You give the appearance of being alive and you know on the inside, you are dying. You think nobody knows. There's somebody who knows. And here Jesus speaks a word of correction, speaks promises to this church, if they will what? If they'll turn to him. If you're within hearing of my voice this morning, that tells us that there's still time. It tells you that there's still time. You don't have to be characterized as a, as a dead Christian or in a dead church. Why not? Because if we would turn to God today, there are far too many people running around professing something with their mouth that their actions are not backed, backing up. If that's you this morning, hear the word of the Lord. Repent. Repent. How do we know if, if we, are, we, are, we are dead or if we are dying? And here's a simple, a simple way to diagnose it is are you repenting? Are you regularly repenting? Are you regularly coming to God, recognizing your sin and asking for his forgiveness? That is a sign of spiritual life. You may say, That's, that sounds like a sign of me sinning. Well, guess what? We're all sinning. The only difference for the Christian is that we are enabled to repent through the Spirit. Martin Luther, in his first of 95 theses, wrote this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That repentance isn't one and done. It's an ongoing act. It's, it's a life of repentance. The, the Christian life is a repenting life. Luther's third thesis was, was this, yet it does not mean solely inner re repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortifications of the flesh. Which means we can say, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I recognize my sin all day. But if we continue to participate in the very things that we've repented of, our repentance is false. The person who says to you, I'm sorry for doing that thing, Will you forgive me? And they continue to do that thing would indicate that they're not actually sorry. They're not actually repenting. They're not turning from anything. For once, to be true about repentance means they turn from the very thing they're repenting of. So repentance is an ongoing act of not only inner, not, not only our heart, but our hands. Hypocritical living comes when we no longer recognize or admit that we are flawed, that we are sinful, and that we are in need of repentance. And the answer to this thinking is the gospel, which tells us in the words of Timothy Keller that we are far more sinful and flawed than we dared imagine. Do you know that? Aren't you glad you came today? You're far more sinful and flawed than you dared imagine. That sounds pretty, pretty rough, doesn't it? But we are also more loved and more accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. Our condition is worse than we think it is, and yet God's grace to you is greater than you think it is. There's hope. There is hope for Sardis. 
There's hope for you and me. There's hope for First Baptist Church. There's hope for the church in America. Some of us might look around at, at Christianity in America and say, it looks like we're dying. And maybe we are. But the word of Jesus to the church, the correction is not just you're dying, good luck. No, you're dying. And here is the treatment. Repent. Return to me. Come back to me. Come back to life with Jesus. And how does that happen? It's through the Spirit. As the Spirit convicts us, we listen and we repent. If you need to repent this morning, we invite you to do it as I pray. May God give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to believe. And may God draw near to us as we draw near to him. Let's pray. Fathers, we turn our eyes to you this day. Would you convict us of sin? Would you cause us to repent? Cause us to see not only the weight of our sin, but the depth of your love. God, if all we see is the depth of our sin, then we are, we are hopeless. Um, we're lost. And if all we see is, is the depth of your love, we'll take it for granted. So Father, help us to, to hold these two things together this morning. That we are sinners, and yet in love, you sent your son to bring us back to you, back into relationship with God, back to life, back to peace, back to hope, back to joy, back to all the things that, that our hearts long for, learning that we find it in you. So whatever it is this morning that we need to repent of, God, would you convict us? It might be pride. Whatever it is for each one, would you give us the grace to repent this morning? Turn from our sin to you and walk in faith by the grace that you give to us. Give us ears to hear today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh God.